0: I'm Alex Mosehead, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And so for for today, the first topic is that Daniel Ek, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Spotify, um, the guy is worth billions of dollars. He recently just donated uh, or announced a 1 billion euro, 1.2 billion dollars, uh, pledge to back deep tech startups in Europe. What he's saying here is he wants to have deep tech moonshot projects spread across the next 10 years. He's referring to machine learning, biotechnology, material sciences, and energy. I thought this, this part was interesting. I want to do my part. We all know that one of the greatest challenges is access to capital, right? And every, every, every entrepreneur, it doesn't matter if you're a tech entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, you understand that uh, quite abundantly. And he, added, he he wants to help these entrepreneurs, particularly these tech entrepreneurs, achieve a new European dream. I get really frustrated when I see European entrepreneurs giving up on their amazing visions selling early on to non-European companies. Hmm, maybe like the US tech monopolies that have just steamrolled Europe. Uh, or, when some of the most promising tech talent in Europe leaves because they don't feel valued here, X said, we need more super companies that raise the bar and can act as an inspiration. The guy isn't worth twenty billion dollars, according to Forbes, he's worth three point six billion dollars. So he's given roughly, you know, uh, a third to a fourth of his net worth to this cause. Clearly, he feels very passionately about it. And rightly so. I mean, we had Benedict Evans on a couple of weeks ago and and this exact topic came up on the show, which was this idea around you know the lost decade, the lost generation of tech entrepreneurs, that lack of homegrown tech community in Europe and could tech protectionism have played a role to help uh support and incubate that tech community in Europe as opposed to um, the u s tech monopolies coming in as aggressively as they have uh with little to no resistance right little to no opposition uh from you know what what european tech conglomerate is there spotify is is probably one of if not you know the biggest uh homegrown tech startups that that people would be familiar with even you know a lot of the ones in um in food let's say right where um we had Grubhub, uh, Seamless Web uh, merge with Just Eat Takeaway, right? So there are some big food players: Just Eat and Delivery um, Hero. But Just Eat, you know, a lot of these companies, number of these companies, have kind of just been copycats of what happened in the United States. So, you know, Rocket Internet is is infamous for kind of incubating. Um, I mean, and there's nothing for them to be ashamed of. They've made billions and billions of dollars doing this, but they take U.S. tech business models and then bring them to Europe. And that's literally their business model is to help incubate those and and kind of fast be a fast follower of, of bringing these businesses to Europe. So, um, you know, long story short, we've it's been a very challenging environment for the EU tech community. We've touched on this. So that's why I thought it was really interesting here. To see Daniel's uh, you know donation here, so there's a few other tidbits from from his interview. We all know that one of the greatest challenges is access to capital, and that is why I'm sharing today I'll de- devote one billion dollars, my personal resources to enable the ecosystem of builders. So you do this by funding so-called moonshots focusing on the deep tech to make a significant positive dent and work with scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, and governments to do so. He expressed his desire to level up Europe against the U.S. in terms of tech unicorns. Europe needs more super companies, both for the ecosystem to to develop and thrive. But I think more importantly, if we're going to have any chance to tackle the infinitely complex problems that our societies are dealing with at the moment, we need different stakeholders, including companies, governments, academic institutions, and investors of all kinds to work together. I think great job to Daniel. I think it's really inspiring what he's doing with this. And And I hope he's wildly successful. It seems like nationalism is just continuously under fire these days, right? If you, if you're from the U.S. and you support the U.S., uh, or 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 if you're a U.S. tech company and you work with the U.S. government, you know there's some somehow this kind of taboo uh, around that being inappropriate, right? And I think this is interesting. On the other side of the pond, uh, in Europe, saying where where Daniel's kind of sharing that similar sentiment. I want to help. European tech companies. I want to help European entrepreneurs. He's not talking about putting this money into US tech companies, right? That is abundantly clear. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, so good job to Daniel. Next topic. You know, we've talked a lot about the, uh, on, on the show. We've talked a lot about fake news. We've talked a lot about um, the need for platforms to be more open rather than more closed. And there is something interesting. We didn't really cover it fully on the show, but this was actually from a few weeks ago. You know, fake news ha- has certainly been exacerbated in, say, the past 10, 20 years, right? Certainly, kind of with the rise of the internet, the rise of uh, uh, content platforms like Google and Facebook, which have just obliterated the business model of the news media publications, right? So you had businesses which were once viable, and now their business model is not viable, and they need to make money somehow, some way. Actually, not somehow. Literally, any way possible, they need to make money. There was a um, a broadcast this morning that I was listening to from the Economic Club in New York with John Elkin, the CEO of Xor. Xor is an insanely cool uh, holding company that owns small companies like Fiat Chrysler, some of you might be familiar with, also um, a competitor to what is Caterpillar called CNH Industrial. They also own The Economist and a variety of things, right? So they own a variety of different businesses. But anyway, he was talking about their investment thesis for The Economist. What his thesis was is that you need to, you know, if you can create really high quality content, you can have a subscription business and you can move away from the ad revenue model, uh, which is what uh, a Google and a Facebook rely upon. And they need to have a viable business in the sense that they need to have a profitable business um, that is sustainable if they want to protect their journalistic integrity, right? If if the company is hemorrhaging money, uh, then they're reporters and journalists he didn't explicitly say this but he kind of intimated that right if you're if you're a media business and your media business is not doing well and it's hemorrhaging money your reporters and journalists their integrity their their journalistic integrity will naturally be sacrificed so that you can write articles that you know might be more triggering might trend higher on social media so you get more ad clicks or revenue or you know you 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 uh you trigger your audience to be more viral and get more uh, hopefully revenue you know short term gain for long term pain right um you might get some some short term immediate ad revenue or you might get a subscription for a month but if the journalistic quality and integrity isn't there long term the business will deteriorate that was my takeaway from it from, from what he was saying and i think if we look at very simply what these social media platforms do we will see how why the rise of fake news is because of two things. One, the viability of the business model of media companies, it's been completely torpedoed. So you had now businesses that aren't making money, that are hemorrhaging money, and they gotta figure out any way possible to try to just break even, which has been largely impossible for for the majority of them. So 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 now you have kind of journalistic integrity and that stuff is 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 at risk. And the second point here is. How network effects work, how uh, virality works on social platforms and content platforms. I'm going to touch on an article on this in a second here to, to really call this out. But because of that, and because of how social platforms like Facebook, how that black box, that matchmaking algorithm works, how it figures out what to put in front of Alex uh, or, or, or anyone's uh, Facebook news feed, it is going to show you stuff. Which gets the most engagement, and very often I think uh what we'll find and what some of these articles that I'm going about to go over show is that very often the stuff that gets the most engagement on Facebook is stuff that is incendiary is triggering is uh going to evoke some kind of an emotional reaction um, which plays to you know whatever kind of stereotype bias social profiling metrics Facebook has on you, and it's because of these kind of hyper-targeted, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of sandboxes where you have these echo chambers, right? Where where Facebook has figured out the magic algorithm say, ah, yes, feed this kind of content to Alex. And he's going to click and share that and like <laughs> it and comment. And all, all the engagement metrics are going to be off the charts. And Alex is going to want to keep coming back to Facebook. And then as a result, you have all the um, Media organizations trying to play the Facebook game, and they know that when they write stuff which is triggering an incendiary and yada yada yada, checks all the boxes, gets Alex all worked up, then their article gets more views, they get more ad revenue, and you have the vicious cycle, which is uh, modern day journalism. So here's a couple articles here uh that I thought would be interesting. So this uh, this just came out in the past couple weeks. Um, This is the testimony of Tim Kendall. He's in front of, it's the House Committee on Energy, but don't pay attention to the energy part. Pay attention to the House Committee on Commerce. And this guy uh, used to work at Facebook. And so I'll I'll just highlight a few pieces here. But he came out to kind of talk exactly about this echo chamber, about this kind of vicious cycle, uh, which is what Facebook has set up here. So this is him kind of recounting. Instead, the social media services that I and others have built over the past 15 years, he was early on at Facebook, have served to tear people apart with alarming speed and intensity. At the very least, we have eroded our collective understanding. At worst, I fear we are pushing ourselves to the brink of civil war. I feel ashamed by this outcome and yada, yada, yada. Okay. My path in technology started at Facebook, where I was the first director of monetization. Read... This guy needs to figure out how to make money off the content, right? I thought my job was to figure out the business model for the company and presumably one that sought to balance the needs of its stakeholders. And and instead, we sought to mine as much attention as humanly possible and turn it into historically unprecedented profits, right? This is attention. This is Alex engaging. Alex coming back. Alex is addicted. Alex needs to get that piece of triggering incendiary content because that is going to elicit the most engagement and attention from Alex. And that translates to dollars and profits. Okay, Uh, Tim, take us away. To do this, we didn't simply create something useful and fun. We took a page from Big Tobacco's playbook, working to make our offering addictive at the outset. Tobacco companies initially just sought to make nicotine more potent but eventually, that wasn't enough to go to the business, and they added sugar. At Facebook, we added status updates. Photo tagging and likes, which made status and reputation primary and laid the groundwork for our teenage mental health crisis. Yikes. Allowing for misinformation, conspiracy theories, and fake news to flourish were like big tobacco's uh, bronchod- bronchodilators, which allowed the cigarette smoke to cover more surface area of the lungs. But that incendiary content wasn't enough. Uh, to continue to grow the user base and, in particular, the amount of time and attention users would surrender to Facebook, they needed more. Uh, tobacco companies added ammonia, and um, for Facebook, extreme incendiary content—think shocking images, graphic videos, and headlines that incite outrage—sowed tribalism and division. And this result, this result, has been unprecedented engagement and dollar signs. Facebook's ability to deliver this incendiary content to the right person at the right time in the exact right way that is their pneumonia Mm -hmm. social media preys on the most primal parts of the brain the algorithm maximizes your attention by hitting you repeatedly with content that triggers your strongest emotions it aims to provoke shock and enrage Ooh, i'm getting chills And this ringing bells for any of you, right? In terms of the type of stuff. Oh, I see this on my feed. Oh, you know, gets you so jacked up, right? It knows how to elicit that emotion out of you. Um, When you see something you agree with, you feel compelled to defend it. When you see something that you don't agree with, you feel compelled to attack it. People on the other side of the issue have the same impulses. The cycle continues with the algorithm in the middle, happily dealing arms to both sides in an endless war of words and misinformation. All the while, the technology is getting smarter and better at provoking a response from triggering you. It's like Facebook's algorithm is the ultimate trigger master of the 21st century, right? They're the ultimate ability to know I'm going to poke you right here, and bam, this is going to get you all worked up. And now I'm going to get my attention, and I can monetize more attention. He goes on, these algorithms have brought out the worst in us. They've literally rewired our brains so that we're detached from reality and immersed in tribalism. It's not by ag- accident, it's an algorithm, it's a playbook. He goes on to cite, you know, more examples of this. So, internal analysis at Facebook found 64% of all extremist group joins group joins. So, that's people joining extremist groups, right? were due to their own recommendations tools. Yet repeated attempts to counteract counteract this problem were or ignored or shut down, right? So Facebook is doing such a good job of helping extremist uh you know group uh groups on Facebook get more uh you know subscribers and and participants uh because it has figured out oh this is an extreme topic this is who uh who who would play into these a- extreme issues and boom yeah it works 64% of that of the group joins are from basically the recommendation algorithms. Yikes. So to be clear, social media is not the root cause of every problem we're facing, but I believe it may be the most powerful accelerant in history. These services are making us sick. These services are dividing us. It's time we take account of the damage, it's time we put in place the necessary measures to protect ourselves and our country. Very interesting. We haven't, exactly hit on this on the show to date um about this about the the role of platforms helping to make fake news basically um you know fake news be rewarded for being fake uh that that you know the content creators have now learned what the algorithm likes the content creators feed up content creators being media feed up content to the algorithm, their algorithm does its job and bam, 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 feeds it out to whoever's going to have that incendiary extreme reaction to it. It's a self-serving prophecy, right? Both sides are in on it. Facebook and the media orgs and, um, you know, the media orgs are addicted to it and Facebook is addicted to it. So what do you do? And what Tim here is saying is, you know, basically remove, uh, the protection that hopefully, I mean, he doesn't caveat it like we do on the show where we say, you know, um, relieving some of that Section 230 protection as it relates to tech monopolies like Facebook could help alleviate some of this problem, right? But again, if it's a broad-based Section 230 dilution, then you're actually going to do more harm than good because you're going to hurt other tech startups and smaller tech competitors, uh, and the and the platform monopolies will ultimately benefit. Um Unless, unless that carve out of Section 230 protection is really just specific to the tech monopolies. Why I bring this up is Facebook understands the power that it holds. And, it, and, and we actually saw it on display how well they understand this, right? Because yes, they're doing content moderation. We've spoken at length about content moderation and, and policies and what you can take down and penalize. And, And Facebook has now kind of set up like a Supreme Court of content moderators, you know, an external tribunal to, to inform policy on content moderation. But none of that touches the mechanics of how Facebook works. None of that touches how virality works. But what did Facebook do recently? Just a few weeks ago, Facebook came out with this article. Facebook, to block new political ads one week before November 3rd, add more tools and rules for fair elections. Now, it's not in the header. But deeper down in this article and others, what Facebook talk, talks about is how they're going to put uh, controls on how information and articles are shared within the platform. Look at this. And given how a lot of misinformation is also shared through direct channels off Facebook itself, it's also going to limit how things can be forwarded on Messenger to stem how content goes viral on there. You'll still be able to share information about the election, but we'll limit the number of chats you can forward a message to at one time. And there are other things that Facebook is putting into place one week before the election, which is basically... Limiting how content is shared and engaged and um, uh, kind of uh, emphasized through through these trigger points, right? By limiting things like, hey, you can't you can only share this with these many people, hosting content to groups um, or other kinds of sharing metrics or commenting uh, controls, right? It'll have an impact. Is it a huge impact? No. But these kinds of controls, these are the kinds of controls that Tim is getting at, in the sense that this Facebook machine, and and it's not Facebook alone, you know, other content social media platforms also, but they are, have built the matchmaking algorithm, they have built the these mechanisms to promote the virality, right, to feed you this content, and then have that get, uh. Shared and bounced around to all your friends and you know this the spiral just takes off and uh, and that's how things get trending. I think there might be putting some limits on how things are trending or what goes into the trending feed and other things like this, right they're going to tinker with the ability to share and a little bit of the algorithm a week before the November third election and that really is this accelerant that Tim is getting at, right? That fake news has already existed. Fake news existed pre-internet, right? These journalists and, and media publications—they didn't ever get everything right, either accidentally or probably some stuff maliciously. But they—they um, they were a lot more integrity-driven when they had a profitable business pre-2000, right? In the in the 20th century. Now you had their business becoming. Not profitable or anywhere near sustainable, A. Eh? And you've got the engine that is Facebook and social media and content platforms that thrive off of basically what is fake news. And the the matchmaking and the algorithms and the sharing and the trending and all this infrastructure and the way these platforms work basically reward fake news. So, you know, you put those two things together and it's the perfect storm. It's it's what Tim is getting at here. Um so what's the solution? Uh are you going to be able to uh to to just rip out all fake news from these content platforms? No you can't. We've seen that. It's just it's a never-ending battle. And uh and it, and it seems like the solution now is to try and use 230 uh as a way to to hold the platforms more liable for um taking a more uh, active role in in the content that they're publishing, and have them take less of a role, taking content off the platform. That's the irony in all of this, right? I mean, if you remove the two thirty provision, to to you know the two thirty protection, is Facebook going to be treated as a publisher because fake news is published on? On, on Facebook, now Facebook's going to be liable to get sued. I don't think that that's what happens. If anything, I, I think it goes in the other direction, which is actually the direction I prefer, which is more open rather than more closed, right? So I think actually Facebook says, you know what? If we do try to take a more active role to curate this ecosystem, if we do try to take a more active role to figure out what is appropriate and inappropriate, uh, then we will be regarded as a publisher. So to avoid being regarded as a publisher, because, you know, I don't know, probably 50 plus percent of the stuff on Facebook is fake and they could be liable for. We just are not going to, we're going to do even less content curation and modification and and moderation. Um, and then, then I actually think that's a good thing. Assuming 230 is not applied holistically to all tech companies, just the tech monopolies. But ultimately we'll see, you know, there's a lot of unknown and what is the DOJ even going to try to do to 230? And then, and then ultimately depending on that, what would the reaction be from the tech company? So there's a lot of unknown, but I think ultimately what they're going to try and do is get Congress to change um, this law, this provision in section 230. And yeah, I, I mean, that, that just, as opposed to trying to use the existing antitrust precedent that's in place, which which to me kind of seems like a dereliction of duties, right? But yeah, it's a whole other whole other ballgame. Anyway, last topic. Two examples of uh a tech abuse on 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 two other sides of the other ocean, the Pacific Ocean. So where we see a lot of tech abuse happening in the United States versus Uh, examples of seeing this in China. So, right. uh, We talk a lot about how governments are using technology um, inappropriately in the U S you know, I talk a lot about um, how there is a violation of people's just liberties um, around privacy by U S government agencies and US government agencies using um, whether it's just kind of drag that mass data collection policies like they have had with the telecom companies for years to just mass aggregate all of your, uh, you know, phone call, text message information that still hasn't gone away, by the way, um, to the five eyes and, and using other, friendly nations intelligence agencies to spy on new citizens and then just magically share that information back with the U.S. agency. And, oh, well, the U.S. agency didn't spy on the American citizen. England did. But then we got the information from England. But we didn't spy on you, says the NSA, CIA, FBI. Okay. Um, And there are other examples. We're now seeing FISA abuse. And um, you know, a lot of the FISA abuse is around the Trump campaign when they were coming into office. But you know, there's a common sentiment here that um, you know, it's only the top brass it, it, it's actually not the rank and file in the FBI. You've heard that, right? Um, and there's now been, you know, one of the agents at the FBI, you know, has now pled uh, guilty to Doctoring an email, literally changing the words in an email that said this guy is not an informant for the Russians, and then changing the email to say this guy is an informant to the Russians, and then f- serving that up in into the FISA court. Um, so, you know, if you want to argue on how high did that go in the FBI or whatever, my point on that is that. That doesn't happen as a one-off, as a one-off issue. That doesn't happen as this just this random FBI agent, just, you know, he decided that he's going to change these emails, forge these documents, and put them in front of the FISA court to get a search warrant on an American citizen. That is a systemic problem. That is a systemic problem of corruption. Inside a government agency, and we have seen whether you go back to the Snowden documents years ago about uh, you know what what the NSA and CIA have been doing just to you know be able to crack into Americans' phones, uh, get information out of all these you know computers, phones, all these various sources, use all these backdoors. The programs exist. The capability exists. And uh, no, not everyone is honest, unfortunately, in these agencies. And I, and I think the situation with the FBI is actually take the partisan stuff out of it. It doesn't have to be right or left. If, if an agent is comfortable doing that, it is, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? These, these agents are smart. They're trained for years. These aren't just, you know, dummies. These people know what they're doing. They know the constitution, they know what's right or wrong. So when you have a violation like that, this is indicative of a much larger problem. I would argue in God, you know, I don't even know how much in the FBI, but widespread in the FBI. You don't just do these things by accident. It is a culture of subverting the rules in altering evidence, or, or, you know, bending the rules or just cheating or whatever, and just expecting not to get caught, or if you do, you know, there's going to be no penalty. And, and slowly, this happens over time. It's the erosion of those rules, which are in place, but then they just don't get followed, and then someone kind of breaks it, but then it doesn't get followed up on, and then they don't get penalized. This is a systemic problem. Ever since, unfortunately, going back to two thousand and one with the Patriot Act, where our U.S. agencies have been given carte blanche uh, capability to spy on American citizens, and when 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 stuff gets leaked, whether it was you know the telecom companies that were given immunity by the U.S. government to to then share all this information against consumer uh, you know uh, approval. Wholesale to the NSA and the and these U.S. agencies, and no one's held accountable, and and no legislation is introduced to curtail these powers. You've got a problem, and you've now got a twenty-year problem. Um, so this, to me, is a big. You know, when I talk about uh, tech abuses in the United States, this it's a common thread. It's not just in the FBI, it's not just in the NSA or the CIA. There are a myriad of examples where our civil liberties have been sacrificed for the never-ending excuse of, you know, terrorism and national security and these kinds of things. You know, and at a certain point there's a balance to say, no, actually, the constitution doesn't let you do that. The constitution protects our civil liberties. Thank you very much. And this is against the law. Unfortunately, no one has been big enough to step up to the U.S. Um, different spy and intelligence agencies to try to rein in their power. And if you don't do it soon, I don't know how it's done. That's the big problem that I see with, you know, the, the, the state of uh, the U.S. government as it relates to tech and, and tech power. Um is that enough of an excuse for our us tech monopolies to not collaborate or work with the department of defense on you know new ai and machine learning technologies and so on and so forth i don't think so um let's look at the other side of of that ocean which is china we have spoken you know many 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 times how there's no separation between Tech monopoly in China and the Chinese government, whereas in the U.S., uh, actually the U.S. tech platform companies are not complicit in the inappropriate, you know, spying requests and and overbearance by the U.S. agencies. Right? It was actually the telecom companies, but the platform companies have not willingly done that. The Apples, the Googles, the Facebooks, um, or at least we haven't. There's no information to say otherwise, right? So far in China, it's the other way around right there's really no line between Chinese tech monopoly um, or hardware uh, um, you know monopoly in Huawei and the Chinese government and as a result of that what you see is it isn't just an infringing upon people's civil liberties and 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 spying on them and uh, you know getting information and then you can kind of trap them with the information and so on and so forth but You know, there are much larger uh, human rights issues going on in China, which, you know, are of huge concern. And because of China's ability to clamp down on technology, um, you know, just the role of freedom of speech and all these kinds of stories, they get stifled. And if you actually want to go find where these stories exist, you got to go look at actually, Australia is a pretty good place to, to look at. So we've talked about on the show. The issue with the Uyghurs, right, where you have these kind of, uh, you know, I think China calls them like re-education camps. Uh, Uyghurs are, are, are a form of Chinese population that are Muslim or they have their own kind of version of Islam or something like that. It's a religion. Communists don't like religion generally. So they need to train the religion out of these people. You know, I think the UN just took this up as a human rights issue to say these are kind of like concentration camps. And that's not okay. But you don't see it because all the tech companies and the Chinese government are working together to stifle this, right? To actively mute, you know, any posts on the social media that reference, you know, Uyghurs and, and this Xinjiang or, you know, this, this part of China. They're in cahoots. That's one example we've talked about uh, with with the patrolling of WeChat when coronavirus was was in was an early issue, and doctors and nurses were trying to communicate with each other. They were called into the police offices and told not to talk about this stuff anymore, right? That's another issue. Um, this one I just came across. ethnic Mongolians are being cleansed in China, and you know this poor lady. She's been silenced. She's been kicked off of platforms. Uh, you know, they're, they are um, changing their textbooks. Um, <laughs> the Mongolian characters will be placed by Chinese characters in Mongolian textbooks. Um, you know, people are being imprisoned. A few weeks ago, I received a threatening call from Chinese local authorities that they said if I speak about, about the issues in inner Mongolia, openly say on social media that i will be withdrawn from australia she's an australian they're going to take her out of australia there are things going on in the u.s that are not okay but when you compare them on the spectrum you know this is china and this is the u.s and there's really no comparison when it comes to the level of tech abuse by the government the stuff in the united states is not okay is it appropriate for U.S. tech monopolies to not work with the government on DoD projects? Because of that, no. Um, real action needs to be taken on what's going on with the the overreaching of U.S. agencies on our citizens and 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 their information. Um, and the U.S. tech monopolies have done a good job of holding their own on inappropriate information requests coming from the government. So I will give them that. Um, But it doesn't mean that you need to cut off collaboration on different kinds of, you know, military research projects. Um, And I don't really think that's the main motivation factor for why they don't want to work with them in the first place. I think it's, you know, really instead an identity issue and they don't, you know, they don't really identify as an American company anymore. They're kind of like these own nation states that don't really have an allegiance to any country, unfortunately. So that's not all of them. That's some of them, Google in particular. But anyway, you compare that to the stuff that's going on with China and the abuse of the power and value that platforms bring to society, which is a lot, Um, and you start to see how that value and the power of, of, of platform monopolies gets diluted and actually reversed, right? It actually kind of works against you, unfortunately. Where, you know, you would have thought 21st century oh in the internet information data that you're going to have a much more open environment and you're just seeing things become more closed and you're seeing you're seeing in the extreme versions in China and other communist totalitarian governments actually becoming even more closed and even more policed than they were maybe 20 years ago and it is because that the tech monopolies have now essentially enabled these governments to do all these kinds of things and that's the scary uh, an unfortunate abuse really of, of that platform power. That's it for us today on Winner take all. Hope you have a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you soon.